and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. On this edition, we will be doing two parts of the show. The first part will focus on the first qualifying round of Copa Libertadores action, and the second part will look at the under-20 South American Championships. The second part of this show was actually recorded earlier today, but joining me tonight as the first round of the Libertadores action has just finished are... Austin, a regular on this pod and somebody everybody knows. How are you, Austin? I'm doing well, Adam. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm good, thank you. Recovering from injuries, I hear? Oh, yeah. Somebody uh, stamped on my big toe tonight, so I'm in agony. And I'm hoping to be fit enough to, to start in the Immigrants World Cup here in Santiago on Sunday. So keep your fingers and toes crossed for me. I hear England are our favourites in that competition. I wouldn't say we're favourites, but you know we did get a three-two win over Argentina on Sunday in 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 our one warm-up friendly. So, you know there there is some optimism in the camp. But apparently, Uruguay, Brazil, Venezuela, and France all have stronger squads. Apparently, so. But let's see, let's see, let's see how it goes. But hopefully, I'll be fit enough. Also joining us tonight is a debutant for the pod. And that is Andres Mendes. Mendes, that's right. Yeah. You can call me Andy. Though. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be making my debut. Okay, welcome, Andy, to the pod. Um, maybe you can just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. You're you're going to be. I put a call to arms out on a pod um, a couple of weeks ago, asking for a Bolivian expert to get in touch, and you were the man who who replied to that cry for help. And uh, so maybe you can tell the listeners a bit about yourself, where you're from and who you support. Sure thing, sure thing. So I'm from Bolivia. I support Wilstermann. You might be familiar with with the team. We had a good run on the Libertadores Cup last year. And I lived in Scotland as well. So if you pick up a strange accent, that might be it. (laughs) I think World Football Index listeners will certainly be familiar with a Scottish accent by now. Um, maybe not on this pod, but certainly across the network. There's, there's been plenty of Scots. A quick question. Are there many Bolivians with a Scottish accent on their English? It doesn't feel like that's something I would encounter very often. Is that correct? I think you're correct, yeah. Other than my relatives, I think we're, we're the only ones I know, at least. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> well, welcome again to the pod. And um, I'll be coming back to you in a minute because we're going to be discussing this first qualifying round of Libertadores action and probably even one of the most dramatic games um, we saw this week was between Bolivar of of Bolivia um, who went to Uruguay to take on Defensor Sporting in in the second leg. They had lost the first leg at home. A shock victory for the Uruguayan side. It's not often a Uruguayan side goes to La Paz and win. But that's exactly what Defensor did uh, last week. They beat Bolivar 4-2. And actually, the Bolivians ended up that game with only eight men on the pitch. Two men sent off in injury time. Uh, Lienos got sent off early on in the game when it was at 0-0. So that certainly helped the Uruguayans. Uh, Bolivar pulled it back to 2-2. But in the end, 
Defensor ran out 4-2 winners in, in, in that clash. But tonight, it, it was it was very dramatic, wasn't it, Austin? With Bolivar almost pulling off uh, an incredible comeback. Yeah, Adam, this was the uh, the type of match where you, you look at the first leg score, you see the 4-2, as you said, a surprising victory, a crazy Libertad Royce matches, a pair of goals from Pereira Diaz for Bolivar, uh, the trio of red cards that leaves them playing 11 on 8 at the end. Uh, it was all we expected from the start to this competition. And then the way that this match tonight started, Defensor Sporting took the lead within two minutes. Uh, that seemed to put it away. You know, I, I didn't turn the game off, but I was really close to. And it just seemed like the Uruguayans were going were gonna to comfortably advance from there. But then in a span of 10 minutes, Bolivar actually pulled three goals back before halftime. Uh, Jusinho, Arce, and the Brazilian Tomas with a Z made it 3-1, or, or a Z, as you would say, Adam, uh, made it 3-1 and actually put Bolivar just a goal away where they sat then for the entirety of the second half. They had some chances. They went down to 10 men at one point, only to see defensor sporting immediately reduced to 10 men as well. Uh, the Uruguayans scored in stoppage time to make it 3-2, but Bolivar still needed just one goal to force penalties. They didn't find it. This was a fantastically entertaining match. I did not expect this from a Bolivian side going away from the altitude against a defensive sporting side that might not be very good, but has certainly shown us some things in the past few years to, to be dangerous in this competition. I didn't envision this going this way. It was a truly entertaining match. And I'm a bit sorry for the Bolivians because they, you know, you shouldn't give up four goals at altitude at home. That just shouldn't happen. And it did. And in the end, that's what actually cost them going on in this competition. Yeah, that 4 do. That 4-2 defeat at home in La Paz, that, that was a bit of a shock, Andy. Yes, Adam, it really was. However, if you if you actually watch the game, you can tell that Bolivar, they dominated the match. They actually had 30 to 36 chances on goal, and that's the most uh, team has had in six years in Copa Libertadores. The Facebook page was posting that. So that, it was a really strange one. Like you said, they ended the match with eight players, three sent off and conceded four goals in, in the altitude. I think the, the main problem was that they might have overestimated, overestimated Defensor. The defending was really poor. It, when they were defending, it was it was hasteful defending. They it, You could tell that they just wanted to get to the other side of the park and, and try and score. They, they never wanted to be behind in the match. They were all trying to get ahead and that went against them and the second goal and the first sending off really really put a downer on on their match but they did manage to put a game on in Uruguay which not a lot of people expected especially after that early goal and they almost almost made it they were a goal away from qualification but Defensor they played pretty well I have to say Uruguayan teams tend to do pretty well in the altitude as well and it was a very organized, compact team. I didn't find them to be very um, offensive, very dangerous in the uh, attack in third. But they might be able to pull a, a good result against their next opposition in the cup. As far as Bolivar, this is a big blow for them. They're a club with big ambitions. They're owned by a private organization called BISA and the head of this organization is actually the CEO of Sprint in the States. He's a friend of David Beckham isn't he? Exactly yeah Marcelo Claudio he's a controversial figure he's put a lot of money into the club throughout the years and they've 
Stonewell a couple, in a couple Copa Libertadores tournaments. But overall, I think it's been, it hasn't been that successful. They put in a lot of money and each year they seem to renew their team. This this team looked promising, but this will be a, a big blow for them because they, they were expecting to go through and, and definitely get to the group stages at, at least. And I think one of the things for me in that first leg, Andy, was... As you mentioned, they had Leonio sent off in the first half with about half an hour played. And then they gave up the two goals to defensive sporting to go down 2-0. But then they battled back and they got it to 2-2. And it kind of felt like if they could have just held that result, they would have been okay. And maybe they could have gotten something out of, enough out of the second leg to go through. But those two goals that they gave up, particularly the second goal to make it 4-2 right at the death of that first leg... I think that's really where they kind of lost their opportunity. Obviously, giving up the early goal tonight didn't help either. But in looking at it, I think that's what Bolivar are probably going to look back and rue the missed chances of letting that equalizing goal kind of slip away from them and allow defensive sporting to, to grab that tie at the end of the first leg. Yeah, I agree. I, I have to say, though, I think Bolivar would have been... Um, would have made a more significant contribution to the Cup. I think... They they just didn't make um, they didn't score the chances they had, and that went against them. But I think they would have been the better team. But we'll see what Defensor can do now. It is worth mentioning that we do lose a team in La Paz, which we hate to see for the Libertadores. We love La Paz, but this Defensor Sporting team, as we just discovered tonight, apparently has an amusement park behind one of their stands, and so behind one of the goals, there's Ferris wheels and tilt a whirls. So. I, I don't know. For the good of the competition, I might need to see this amusement park in action again. And they'll be facing Barcelona of Ecuador in the second phase. I think you'll probably favor the Ecuadorian side there. But defensive sporting have plenty of Libertadores about them, too. I'll not have any slanderous accusations against their amusement park, Adam. Or theme park, as you would call it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit gutted with losing the jeopardy that is uh, the altitude of La Paz. Just very quickly, Andy, while we have you here and have the opportunity to, to talk to someone who really knows about Bolivian football, what do you make of, of the other three teams from Bolivia that we'll see in this competition? And kind of what do you expect from them going forward? I think, you know, we obviously are probably guilty of this at times. We can be very reductive about Bolivian football, you know, dangerous at home in the altitude, pretty crap away from home generally, although obviously that wasn't the case tonight. But looking at the three teams that Bolivia does have, kind of what would be your expectations for them in this competition? Well, it's always it's always a challenge in Copa Libertadores for Bolivian teams, but I do find that they perform better than the national team. Obviously, we do get to play a couple of foreign players, and that does help. With regards to the three remaining teams in the Cup, first up, we'll see Mata Bolivar, we'll see the strongest, who I'm sure you, you're familiar with. They actually underwent a management change, and they'll have an ex-player as manager, and it's, he's one of their best players in the, in, the recent, in the recent past. His name is Pablo Escobar. He's very respected. A legend. In, in, yeah, a legend, very respected around South America. Argentinian commentators really like him every time he he was playing they would always give him lots of compliments but now we'll have to see how he does as a manager and his start has been a bit bumpy he, he has uh, had a defeat 5-0 defeat in his second match so we'll see how that goes I, I think they should get through they, they have the squad for it they have lots of good Bolivian players so in altitude in La Paz 
they should be able to to get through and get the result. And hopefully they'll get to the group stage. Whereas the other two teams are already in the group stage. The, the first one would be San Jose. San Jose is a team from Oruro. They've, they have played in the Copa Libertadores, but not in the recent editions. They, they play at altitude as well, not as high as La Paz. But it's still significant, so it will be a, a beneficial factor. They're actually the defending champions of Bolivian football at the moment. However, their manager, the manager that led them through the recent campaign as champions, has been offered the the post to place as national team coach. So he actually hasn't he hasn't signed the contract yet. He's been announced, which is pretty strange. He went to the to the draw in, in Paraguay, I think it was held. And we still haven't had confirmation because there seems to be some discrepancy with the um, salary, the wages that the Federation are offering and what he wants. So San Jose had to get a new coach and they got a coach that has been their coach in the past, Nestor Clausen. And their team is still pretty strong, so we'll see how they do. But I, I can't see them getting through the group stage unless they, they really pull their weight at home. And the last team is the best team, my team, Wilstermann, who you might be familiar with. And we did undergo some changes. We we were champions right before San Jose, and we kept our manager for the whole year last year. But we did get a new manager. He's a Spanish man, Miguel Angel Portugal. He's managed in... Spain and all over the world. He he's quite reputable. He has a good reputation. He was due to take over at Real Madrid as first team coach from right before Brent Schuster, I think, is how it's pronounced. Took over, and he'll be leading us now. He's trying to play a different type of football. Wilstermann played counter attack in football. It's worked pretty well for us since we have big strikers. And he's trying to implement a different system where we retain the ball more. And the altitude isn't that significant here in Cochabamba, so perhaps we, we can play the game he's proposing and and try and get a result away as well, which is something Bolivian teams struggle to do. But yeah, in a nutshell, that's, that's how Bolivian teams stand. And hopefully, at least my team will get through to the the last 18, 16, so. Cool, cool. Well, we we'll certainly look forward to seeing them and especially King Eddie back from his doping ban for Wilsterman just in time, I think, for the start of that campaign, no? Yes, hopefully. He hasn't been in action in a while. I'd like to see... I gotta um, think his fitness is, is, real, is gonna be in a really tough shape here because his <laughs> fitness was such a big deal for King Eddie. Yeah, yeah. I want to see what, what he's like, but there's something about him. He plays with experience, even if he can't catch the the, the fast, pacey wingers, he, he'll find a way to stop them. So I'll be looking forward to seeing him and, and the rest of our team. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, let's move on to talk about the other couple of ties very quickly in, in, in this Libertadores. Um Last night saw a very dramatic clash that, that you witnessed, um, Austin, uh, between uh, Riel Gasolazo, who were 1-0 down from the first leg against the Venezuelan side Deportivo La Guaira. Guaira won the first leg 1-0. 
um, in Venezuela. They were 2-0 down heading into injury time. And what happened next, Austin? And then an absolute shock happened, Adam. Uh, Balza for Guaira, Guaira was, was able to put them on top and send them through on away goals thanks to a massive, massive error in defense from Dulanto, a player for Garcia Lasso who actually had just come on as a substitute to shore things up defensively. Uh, they re- replaced their number 10. They put him on and in the back just tried to make a pass back to the goalkeeper, maybe to another defender, and just didn't hit it hard enough. Balls up, pounced, got one-on-one with the Garcia Lasso goalkeeper, Faro, and then had a really nice chipped finish, it must be said, to, to put it in. And that was with about 60 to 90 seconds left in this match. It was in injury time. Just absolute heartbreak for Garcia Lasso, who used the altitude to their advantage, I think it's fair to say, in this second leg. After what was, in truth, a pretty cagey first leg in Venezuela the, a week um, ago. Yeah, I saw, I saw that first leg, and I would say that that was one of the worst Libertadores matches I've, I've ever seen, quality-wise. It was just oh, really, really quite bad. I, 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 I would be shocked if the Venezuelan side managed to get, to get beyond the next round. I think I would agree with that assessment uh, with you. I, neither of these sides are particularly good. Uh, we saw Garcia Lasso in the group stage last year pull, spring a surprise against Santos and really not provide much of a fight elsewhere. Uh, but I think it's just kind of the beauty and the drama of the Libertadores sides. These two teams were by no means good. This match finished 10 on 10. Uh, Garcia Lasso were down a man for the majority of it and then actually were able to pull a second goal back after Monco, a mercurial playmaker who's been all around, uh, did what you were always supposed to do in the altitude, Adam. He had a hit uh, from about 40, 45 yards out. Just uncorked one it. that nestled under the crossbar. Yeah, he, he absolutely lapazed it uh, in, in, in the thin air of Cusco. Cusco did. Um, he Cusco, lapazed it sounds better. I think you can, I think the verb moves. Yeah. I think he can travel. Uh, but it was a wonderful, wonderful strike. They got the second through an Ifeo, um, but then fell short in, in the last moment. As you said, um, this was a fantastic result for Guaira. I think that shouldn't be understated. They're the lone debutante in this year's Copa Libertadores. They're advancing to the second phase of qualification, but they're going up against an Atletico Nacional team that, as much as our pal Simon Edwards wants to say, they're kind of in turmoil. They've had some issues with the squad. They've had some managerial turnover. I think they're probably significantly better than their Venezuelan counterparts and should probably be favored to advance. But this is still a fantastic moment for Guayua. It, it was a dramatic finish. You, you can see it on their faces how much this meant to them. Uh, so I think they, they do deserve a tip of the cap for this result. Really, really impressive and really heartbreaking for Garcia Lasso, who you know, maybe could have used some altitude in our favor to, to try to sneak by Nacional. Had it in their hands and let it slip away right at the death. And last but not least was Delfin of Ecuador beating Nacional of Paraguay at 5-1 on aggregate. This tie was pretty much over after the first leg. The Ecuadorians ran away 3-0 winners. And if we're doubtful of the other sides who advanced from this first phase, um, if we're doubtful on their chances of maybe making it to all the way to the group stage, I think that Delphin could well make it all the way. Um, they looked a very decent side indeed. Um, it, over over these two legs and in Ordenez up front Roberto Ordenez a big burly experienced striker so strong um, deadly in front of goal as well 
um, as 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 it, as he's aged. Um, he was really missed in Delphin's Libertadores campaign last year um, through injury, and I think he he could well provide um, the spark for a better campaign in the Libertadores this year. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think of the three teams that go through, there's no doubt that Delphine is the most talented and the most capable. And then furthermore, when you look at their draw, they certainly have the kindest draw, I think, to get into the group stage from their current position. Next up, they'll play Caracas, uh, the Venezuelan team. I think you like their chances in that tie. And then if they were to advance to the final, the playoff round, they'd face either Melgar or Universidad de Chile, which I think when you kind of look at the four paths is probably the lightest of the four paths. Obviously, La U have some talented players. That's a good side. It certainly wouldn't be a pushover. But of these three teams, I think Delphine, you feel pretty confident are the only are the only ones that stand a chance to make the group stage. And they looked a, a really good outfit. You know, I think they were significantly better than Nacional. Uh, Ordonez, man, as you said, they could have really used him last year. He's quite the player, especially at this level. Big, physical, which, you know, we've seen obviously a different position. But but a player like Yeri Mina, when you have that physicality, it can be so difficult to, to mark that guy and to take him out of games. And Ordonez is exactly that player. The brace and an assist in the first leg. Uh, the second leg looked like it might be close. The, the Paraguayans scored very quickly on. They obviously needed to get three to stand any chance. Vieira, the man who put them in front. Uh, but Delphine got one right before halftime. Got two, actually, right before halftime. One through that man, Ardonez, and then another through Garces to, to completely seal off the tie. Uh, his presence in the box is really strong, and I think he's a type of player that can really challenge opposing defenses in this competition and is certainly one to keep an eye on. Uh, already three goals in his bag. He's got a Venezuelan team up next. He could be pulling a Wilson Morello on us here, Adam, where he's going to stake his claim to the golden boot without maybe even getting to the group stage. Uh, but the three goals is certainly a good start. And this is a Delphine side that is certainly a joy to watch. And I look forward to seeing how they progress in this competition. Well, Dornes for the golden boot. I'm 100% with you on on that one, Austin. Um, I think that wraps up our Copa Libertadores chat in, in part one of this podcast. Um, Austin and Andy can't join us for part two. So I'm just going to find out where you can find them on Twitter. So Austin? I'm at Austin underscore James 906. Uh, excitedly watching Jorge Sampaoli Santos doing some very interesting things there, playing a different style of football. Uh, as always, tons of Brazilian football updates, lots of South American football updates. So uh, be sure to give me the follow there. And Andy, where 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 can people find you? I don't actually use Twitter much, but if anyone's looking for me, want to know more about Bolivian football, I do have a Twitter account. It's Mendez dot M E N D E Z D O T. Okay, and that's uh, Mendez with a Z. Yes. Okay. Welcome to part two of the South American Football Show. In this part, we're going to look at the under-20 South American Championships. Um, Those who listen to our last two Scouting Spotlight podcasts will know that this tournament kicked off in Chile two weeks ago. And now we're currently one match day, well, during this recording, we're, we're one match day into the hex, the final stage, the last six teams. I'll explain more to those unfamiliar with the system in a minute, 
But joining me to discuss the, this uh, under-20 South American Championships are Tom and Simon. How are you doing, Simon? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I've been enjoying lots and lots and lots of football, lots and lots of names, lots of exciting talents and some exciting football, some not so exciting football. Looking forward to discuss. And Tom? Yeah, similar. It's, uh, the games come thick and fast, don't they? And it's um, there's, there's a lot of football to take in and not all of it has been as, as free-flowing and spectacular as maybe we've seen in previous editions. But um, I think there's, yeah, there's always plenty at stake and certainly now that we're in the hex it's um it's ramping up that extra notch and yeah getting exciting yeah as as tom mentions there we're in the hexagonal final stage of the competition so basically we started out with the 10 comparable nations they were placed into two groups of five and the top three in each of those groups made it to the 16 final stage called the hexagonal the the top four if you're still with me then the top four of this hex will qualify for the Under-20 World Cup, which is due to take place in Poland in May, June kind of time uh, this year. Let's have a look at first who went out um, in Group A. So Chile were the hosts of this tournament and they ended up crashing out with the last kick of the game against Colombia. I'm actually not going to dwell on Chile too long in this pod as I hope to write something about this in in the near future. But for me, much of the blame rests with the Chilean FA for this failure. Um, I think it's too easy to blame the players and the manager. I think now we've seen pretty much three under-20 under 20 cycles end yeah, very disappointingly. Um, uh, there's been a real lack of leadership um, at this level, but you could argue throughout Chilean football for the last few years now. Um, and, you know, I, I'm still shocked that the Chilean FA showed the faith they did in Robles um, after the disaster in, in 2017 um, in Ecuador uh, in the under-20s there. The fact that he kept his job and uh, and never really moved the playing style on that much. Um, I, I think he did have some semblance of one when Savidra was was fit uh, and he was like the linchpin of the side. But once he lost him to injury, it, it, it felt like the the house of cards came falling down. Yeah, like I say, Rob Robles, the manager for me, had a disaster of a tournament. The one 0 win against Brazil was pretty much, you know, the only highlight, and that was mainly thanks to an outstanding goalkeeping performance from uh, Luis Oreta, um, the goalkeeper I kind of picked out at, uh, in 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 our preview pods uh, as a as a key performer. But unfortunately, he couldn't keep Chile in in the tournament, and, and like I say, that they ended up going down to a injury time goal from from Colombia. It was pretty much the last kick of the game. Um, and uh, and yeah, for a draw against Bolivia in their opening game obviously didn't help things. I think to have qualified from this group, that that really was a must-win. Looking back, um, I think the other, apart from the goalkeeper's performance, probably the other positive you could possibly take is um, Ivan Morales found some kind of form. Um, yeah, he's been very disappointing pretty much whenever I've seen him over the last year or so for Colo Colo and for the under-20. So 
Um, it, it was it's quite nice to see him having a decent tournament. Um, there were one or two other promising performances, but but for me, Chile never really convinced at any point, and they certainly deserve to go out, even if it was uh, cruel timing in the end. Um, do you agree, Tom, or am I being too negative? No, I think you've got it pretty much spot on. I think that game, that opening game against Bolivia, really sort of set them off on the wrong foot. They they had plenty of possession in that game, but we're just getting sort of ripped open by Bolivia's counter-attack. And we certainly saw a better Bolivian side than we'd anticipated going into the tournament. But the fact that Chile were the only side not to beat them, um, I think was, yeah, was the crucial, crucial moment. And they were all always going to have an uphill struggle against some, you know, pretty similar sides in, in Colombia, Venezuela and Brazil. Um, obviously, there's that, the cruel Simon versus Adam Derby right at the end there that was that was nicked at the death by Colombia. I don't think there was much in it between Chile and Colombia. They they both had struggles in front of goal, but I think Colombia's superior defence kind of got them through. So yeah, disappointing to see Chile um, not progress to the hexagonal at least. Um, and as well as Saavedra, I think they really missed uh, Nico Guerra as well as we as we uh, again said in in the preview pods. Uh, so disappointing and. Hopefully, at least um, it will serve as a good development experience uh, for some of the players there. Yeah, let it be known that while my four-year-old, who was at probably the first football match he's going to remember, was a little bit annoyed and upset that Chile were out, Simon was going crazy around his room, apparently, celebrating celebrating the, <laughs> the tears of my child. <laughs> anyway, um, another team who went out... Um, at the uh, at, at the first group stage was Bolivia. Um, although I was actually fairly impressed with how they played um, in these under twenty championships. I think I've been watching since the two thousand eleven edition, and for me, this was probably the best Bolivian side I've seen in terms of technical quality. Anyway, um, they they passed the ball really well. Um, they created some decent chances, but the thing they really lacked for me was a goal scorer. As predicted on the preview pod, Ramiro Vaca, Mr. Cow, he was playing a little bit more advanced than I expected, but he really impressed in in, in that number ten, in in that number ten role. Yeah, and and there was a couple of other impressive performers. Um, anybody who caught caught your eye, Simon? Yeah, for me, I think the interesting thing with with Bolivia and with all of the sides in this competition is, it really shows that the the technical level in South America as a whole is rising. We'll talk about Brazil and Argentina, and maybe they haven't particularly impressed. But I think in terms of the future of South American football and qualifying, I think all of the sides are generally moving in the direction, apart from perhaps some of the established powers who we can discuss. But for me, Bolivia were very impressive in a lot of things that they did. Uh, One of the star players for me in midfield, um, Vac obviously was the key man with his passing and his creativity, uh, was the man they looked for creativity. But I think the guy who was making a lot of things happen was Franz Gonzalez, who plays for Sport Boys. He was really interesting for me. A, a very good mixed box-to-box number eight, some nice quick feet, won the ball well. He was, for me, uh, an impressive player. Um, but yeah, I think Bolivia did quite good. They also had some decent centre-backs. They looked all right. You're completely right about putting the ball in the net. Um, they definitely had to do a lot more to, to work those clear openings and to take those openings in the final third. But Everything up until that point was was quite interesting and quite good. I think they were also physically a little bit behind. They had a group full of 
uh, big teams, uh, Colombia, Venezuela. These are big physical teams, and I think they struggled a little bit in that regard. But overall, you know, some impressive, decent quality football from Bolivia uh, in this tournament. Unfortunate not to have done better, but it really came down to that physical edge and that final third uh, creation and, and, and putting the chances they made away. Um, later on, I spoke to our new Bolivian expert, Andres, to get his take on Bolivia's performance in this tournament. Like I just said, we've got, we've got Andy with us, joining us for, for a discussion about the Bolivia under-20 side. Um, as we've just said there on the pod, um, yeah, they, they did impress us, especially compared to Bolivian sides at this level from the past. We thought, we thought they played decent technical football, but perhaps just lacked that killer instinct in front of goal. Um, would you go along with that? And, and what was the reaction back there in Bolivia to their performance? Yes, Adam, that's sort of the impression I had as well. We did have high hopes for, for this tournament. We appointed a foreign manager, which was quite controversial at first. His name is Sixto Visuete. He's Ecuadorian and he's pretty well known for developing young young players. And they, he took the team on a tour around South America. So that's not something our under 20 teams usually do before the Sudamericano tournaments. So we did have high hopes. We were hoping for a, a win at least. We were hoping for something better, but we are pretty happy. We were relieved we didn't have any any really strong bad results. All in all, they were pretty close, all matches. And in most matches, we did have spells where we did have the ball. We kept possession and we did try and play... We did try to play positive football, and I think we'll take that as a as a good sign, as a good start. But as you say, we did lack a goal scorer. Uh, we we didn't have enough killer instinct in the final third. We had lots of chances, but none of them were quite clear. So I think the the boys there are going to be regretting some of the opportunities they missed. But all in all, it's it wasn't too bad. However, we we would have liked to to get. A couple of good results. And was there any players which uh, which came in for particular praise there in Bolivia um, on the pod? We, we we've really enjoyed watching Ramiro Vaca, the number ten, play, and uh, France Gonzalez, the the number eight. Simon mentioned. I I, th- I thought you were quite solid at the back as well in, in in this tournament. Some impressive performances for me from the number three. Uh, Walter Antelo, was there much reaction to particular players there? Yes, we do know a couple of those already because some of them actually have main roles in the teams in the in the first division here. There's a winger called Eric Cano. He was playing week in, week out with Aurora, um, first division team here in, in Bolivia. And he's very pacey. He, he did put on a couple of good performances. Perhaps his size might have gone against him. He's pretty small, but he did um, impress. We were also pretty happy with the goalkeeper, Cuellar. He, he put in a couple of good performances. He plays for Guavira, which is a, a team that's known for playing young players and promoting them. So th- those, those two were, were pretty well spoken about in the media here, as well as Ramiro Vaca. Ramiro Vaca is definitely the... The main guy, he's actually played his second Sudamericano. He was there for the last one as well. And his trajectory is pretty interesting as well. 
you started off in a well we don't actually have a second division but in the Copa Simon Bolivar which is the um, promotion tournament to get to the first division he was at a small team and he was pretty much leading the team at the age of 17 and then the strongest found out he was doing so well so they signed him up and they're trying to develop him so he's one to watch for for the future plays as a number 10 and now that the um, Strongest are going to be coached by the legend, as you said, Pablo Escobar, number 10. It'll be good to see how Ramiro Baca progresses with with Pablo as, as coach. Okay, thanks thanks for that, Andy. That's, that's, uh, that's amazing detail. And um, it's, it's, it's great to have some proper insight into Bolivian football on, on this South American football show. Anytime, anytime. I'm happy to help you. And I do realise that Bolivian football might not be covered as... Brazilian football or Argentinian football but I think there there's still some value in it there's still lots of lots of good players and it's definitely as as interesting and it has all the elements of any South American top division so yeah, you can keep an eye on it well, Bolivian sides in the Libertadores have certainly entertained us over the years we've been doing this podcast. So thanks again, Andy. Cheers. No, thank you. I'm really happy to be on the podcast. I've been following for a couple years now, and I'm happy to be here. So thank you for having me. Okay, moving on. Let's move on to the three sides that did make it through to the Hex. We'll start with Simon's dear old Columbia. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they made it through with the last kick of the game against Chile. A dramatic ending that sent a few hundred Colombians in attendance, wild with joy at the opposite end of the stadium to me. However, I found Colombia, and I still do, based on their performance yesterday against Brazil, a pretty uninspiring side. I would say. I, I think they arguably have the best defence in this tournament. Um, and well, they certainly have the best defender in Cuesta, anyway, who has looked to class above in, in, in that centre-back role. But um, Angulo has had his moments in attack, but overall, I find it a bit ins- insipid, to be honest, Simon. I don't know if you agree at all. So for me, I think the, the big thing um, watching these games and, and the general feeling in Colombia uh, the biggest disappointment is the huge lack of a uh, number nine. Not a lack of a huge number nine. There's plenty of those, but not any uh, any who are any good, uh, which is really the issue. And Colombia in the first group stage were playing with two strikers. It's like if you don't have any good ones, let's just play two instead. And I think that was also problematic. Um, they kind of stumbled across what they should have been doing once they went down to 10 men against Chile and then brought on Enamorado. Uh, on one wing and and Ivan Angulo on the other side. So, yeah, I think that's one of the big issues. No presence in attack. And Tolosa, who is very tidy on the ball and is good, hasn't quite stepped up as the key creative man. It's very disappointing to see a Colombia side without an obvious number 10. Uh, If you look back over previous tournaments, that's always been something they've generally had. You're right about the defence. Quest has really led things well. Uh, I like uh, Palacios at fullback. Again, has a little bit rough around the edges, but tall and quick and gets up and down well. Um, while Colombia have still maintained some stability despite getting forward, Vera on the other side has also been pretty good. Mayen goal has been has been good as well. So the defence and the goalkeeper have done well. There's some good options in front of the defence. Uh, for me, Goes was the best, but he's been out injured, which is a real shame. Uh, he's a bit more dynamic than the options they have. 
Uh, elsewhere, uh, Carvajal come in and done well in that position as well. Um, Balanta, a little step behind, I'd say, but also solid. And Alvarado has come in in the last few games, the guy from Watford. Plays some nice passes, is is tenacious, but a little bit less polished and composed compared to the other options. I think he's he's more Premier League than he is South American, Colombian style, which sounds like a compliment, and it really should be. But I think he's a little bit edgy doesn't quite fit in with the system but he's been fairly good as well so that's the, that's the positive Ivan Angulo I think has been key hasn't had enough of the ball but whenever he gets it you can see the opposition defense going immediately into retreat uh, very very quick and skillful and direct in Amoral on the other side small but uh, but looking all right he's already been linked with a move abroad so he's interesting um, so we'll see I, I just think the biggest issue is none of the strikers can finish and only, I mean, Correa, Rival Correa has a bit of presence, but I mean, the likes of Dylan Ortiz is just like a six foot six child. No presence, no strength, no intelligence. So Colombia have no strikers. The manager's gone for the big guys up top. And these are guys who have scored 60 goals a year in under 15 football, but it's because they've basically been adults for the last five years. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I'd say solid, but lacking a creative number 10. The wingers have been good, but they've got nothing to play towards. So it's a flawed Columbia team. Some some four, five or six decent prospects, good defensive work, moving the ball fairly well generally, but with not much converting that possession into offensive opportunities. Yeah, I think it's been a case of having a lot of the ball, but it's been quite sterile um, domination in terms of over what they're doing with it. Certainly, as you've both mentioned that the lack of goals is what two two goals in five games, which tells its own story. And that lack of a number ten, like we've had, you know, um, Cucho Hernandez, Quintero, Zapata in in recent years gone by, and there's just no one who kind of um, holds a holds a candle to them. Um, so. Yeah, it's. I've been um, thoroughly underwhelmed by Colombia as well. It's. It reminded me a lot of actually um, their last campaign once Damian Seta had got injured and and they had a lot of the ball and and sort of Hernandez was pushed a bit further forward and and they just weren't able to really click and you know they looked quite nice and decent and solid at the back with their with their physical presence but um, yeah I can't see them at the moment getting to the world cup and uh i think um yeah their only hopes is if they can kind of grind out the results based on that solid defense yeah you know i i, I do think there's good players in this squad but where it matters is where colombia are lacking um you see them passing the ball and i and i know adam's been more underwhelmed than me and perhaps there's some bias here but i think there is some smart, tidy midfielders in there who are really comfortable under pressure. They're not quite Ecuador expressive in the way they move it, but it's all good until the final third. And then there's nothing. Only Ivan Golo is the, the guy most likely to score and he's not really getting the ball enough. So definitely some interesting players in the group, but the overall, the sum of the parts is, is a little bit disappointing to say the least. I probably do have a little bit more to say on this, but I think we'll leave it maybe until... After the after the end of the hex, let's see if they evolve into anything more than they currently are as the tournament goes on. Moving on to another side, who, if you think I was critical of Colombia, then brace yourselves for my criticisms of Brazil. Um, 
We've seen some really disappointing and dull Brazil sides over the last decades or so. Um, not just at this level, but at senior level, um, especially when when they were managed by Dunga. Um, but this under-20 Brazil side, for me, really takes the biscuit. Yeah, I understand possession football hasn't been a big thing now in Brazil for many, many years in, 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 in Brazilian coaching. But when you're being outplayed by Bolivia um, at sea level, uh, then, it, then I think it really is time to sort of reassess everything. Um, I think only Marcos Bahia, the, the number eight there in, in centre midfield for, for Brazil, looks like he's capable of passing the ball and, and then moving into some space. So static, some of the, some of the other players I noticed. Then you, then you have their star man for this tournament, given that they're missing uh, Vinicius. Um, their star man was another Real Madrid player, Rodrigo, um, who I think will play for Santos this year anyway, before making the move over to to Spain. But he was very disappointing in the first game against Colombia. And then he scored two against Venezuela in and when I went online, it was kind of a wash with gush, gushing praise for him. When in reality, he did take the two chances very well in that game. But what was interesting for me, if you're at the game, it was it, the first the first goal. It was very clear what happened. He basically couldn't get a touch of the ball for the first 30 minutes or however long it was before that first goal was scored. Um, because he was playing on the left and he was up against the Venezuelan right-back Pablo Benilla, who we'll speak about more about later as he's been one of the standouts of this tournament. And Rodrigo really struggled. He was being marked out the game. He switched to the, he switched to the other side um, and the left-back for Venezuela, who hasn't played much in this tournament but was given a start in that game, um, made a bit of a howler and, and let Rodrigo in. Um, the second goal was, was was very well taken, to be fair, in the second half, and that did come on on Benia's side. But I think, you know, he, since then, he hasn't really done anything. Um, and neither has this Brazil side. Uh, I'm sure Simon will uh, pick out some other disappointing performers in a bit, but one I think we all agree on is the player who's been their main centre-forward, who I think we're all shocked has been linked with multi-million pound moves, and that's Lincoln. Um, I think he's managed one goal, which was a penalty against Bolivia, which was a pretty poor penalty. If, if the goalkeeper had gone the right way, he would have saved it comfortably. But it was, um, yeah, for me, he he's possibly technically one of the weakest players I've seen in this tournament so far um, and yeah it's, it's, it's kind of just baffling that A he keeps playing and B that there's that where there's any kind of buzz about him at all um, the, the one plus point I will say for Brazil before asking for the opinion of Simon and Tom and that is that their defence has been very well organised and, and very solid it's been difficult to break down um, but yeah, it's 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 difficult to find any kind of positives for their possession play or attacking play. Simon. Yeah, um, yeah, I would agree with everything you've said. I mean, Cipriano on the right wing as well, very quick, but decision making has been terrible. Poor touch. 
and again he's someone high rated as well yeah you know Bahia as soon as five minutes into the first game against Colombia Bahia was straight on straight in my Twitter feed okay this Bahia is very interesting and, and he really is passing moving lots of nice things just joined Shakhtar Donetsk he's the one guy who can play if you looked at this team you would think we were, if they didn't have the shirt on, you would think this is Venezuela of 15 years ago. Um, just just defensive. Seven players behind the ball at all times. Get it to the wingers. Lump it forward to the striker who has nothing. I, I, again, I, surely there's more to Lincoln than this, but he just seems to lack in the pace and the physicality. He, he does press a lot, which is something. But his touch has been off. His movement's been off. And he's been completely, you know, ineffective the wingers obviously the key but they always try to go past their man and so more often than not they've run straight into their fullback and and lost the ball I mean he does you know you would credit some of the, the good defensive play in this tournament by their rivals but they've just seemed like a one-trick pony completely get everyone behind the ball get it to the wingers and try and get them to beat two or three men and and make something happen Rodrigo has been incredibly ineffective he's made most of the fullbacks he's played up against look world class. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the defence has been good. Very, very physical, very strong. Luan is is tough. Uh, not much more than that in front of the defence. Uh, Emerson, strong and, and, and tenacious. But again, he's been rated 15 million off to Europe. Seems a bit interesting. So maybe this is just poor, poor tactics, but it doesn't seem that any of these Brazilian players... They seem the least comfortable in possession than any of the sides in the tournament, which is ridiculous. You walk along the beach in, in Brazil and everyone's quality. Why can none of these players control the ball and pass the ball? So, I don't know. What about Tom? Maybe you can be more positive. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be quite as scathing as you two. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's been really uninspiring stuff. And I think a lot has you just to, don't to do want with to the upset tactics. Austin too much, Tom. Well, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's boring if everyone uh, just agrees with each other, isn't it? So I'll try and find some uh, reasons behind it. I think it is a case of the the tactics um, have been, it just seems like they're playing with a handbrake on it. It's been really unambitious. It seems like they think, you know what? we're good enough here to to get through to to the hexagonal and you know once we get to the world cup then we can call on vinicius junior and and some of the other big names that that weren't available for this tournament and you know give it a go we've we've seen brazilian sides in the past sort of stink out the sudamericano and then bring in a few different players uh, for for the world cup and 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 do quite well um uh, so i think there is that there is definitely hope there and i think Certainly, Lincoln is. I think he's one of the key examples of someone who looks great under under seventeen level. Where I, th- I think he had nine goals in eighteen for the for the under seventeens there. Um, but maybe more of that was to do with his physical advantages at that age group, and he's not really taken the technical step up since then. Um, and also the fact that he was probably playing in a side with with better players than he currently is now. He's certainly not set the the world alight um, for Flamengo. I think he's only got a couple of goals, senior goals to his name. So he's someone who his star has definitely fallen. Rodrigo, um, I think he's I think he's a higher level than than certainly the other attackers in this side, but hasn't really been given the structure or the teammates um, to really flourish and do well. And I think those two goals against uh, Venezuela, which in the end proved pretty crucial in, in making sure that uh, Brazil got through against you know, the best side in, in this group A. Um, I think that 
it shows that there there is something there. Whereas for a lot of the other players, I'm I'm not sure there's going to be any t- uh, players who are really going to be knocking down the door uh, for a place in the first team going forward. At least defensively solid. It, it seems like a lot of the the big nations at the Sudamericano have have played quite cautious, pragmatic football, maybe just to do them with the amount of games and, and stuff like that. We should just touch on that quickly. The, the, I think the heat has played a part as well in that. The, the pitches have been dry and, and pretty slow pitches too. Uh, that has all contributed to, I think, the defences winning much of the battles in, in the majority of games in both Group A and Group B. Probably a bit more pronounced in Group A than B but um, but yeah all, all of those factors have have uh, have played played a part and also uh, just how teams have set up you know it has been very much a safety first approach from majority of sides who have played fairly defense deep defensive lines yeah the big side seems to uh, seem to have regressed or at least tactically gone for a yeah that more pragmatic approach and you know the joy from this tournament so far has come for come from some of the underdogs like i mean even though bolivia finished bottom of the group i think we we were more impressed by them than either chile colombia or brazil and certainly the team that will go on to speak about next venezuela we obviously had high expectations for them after what they did 2 years ago but i think even from those high expectations, they've they've pleasantly surprised us. Is, uh, would you agree with that, Adam? Yeah, definitely, definitely, a hundred percent. You know, we're, we're gonna we're, we're gonna come on to one of the teams of the tournament in a bit, and then in Group B, the team of the tournament, in Ecuador. But I've spoken to some of the scouts who who have been present at at this championships, and and yeah, the, the two sides that have impressed most have definitely been Venezuela and Ecuador. And talking of Venezuela, I did fancy them to get out of the group, but I had them edging out one of Brazil, Colombia or, or Chile. In the end, they edged out Chile, but they not only did that, in the end they topped the group and, um, and have probably been the second best side in this competition to date. They've also had very impressive support here in Chile. Um, Really need to exaggerate that. I exaggerate is the wrong word. Emphasize. Emphasize. That's it. I, I really need to. I really need to emphasize that point here. Um, yeah, the, the, their match on the first Saturday of the competition against the hosts, it sounded more like Caracas than it did Rancagua. Um, so much, due to the fact there were so many Venezuelans there compared to Chileans. So I think the Venezuelan players have been inspired. By that support in some of their matches, um, they beat Colombia in, in in their opening match. They then beat Chile. Like I say, they were unfortunate to lose to Brazil two one, and uh, and then but they bounced back from that with with a win over Bolivia to make it to the final hex. They started the hex last night with a one one draw against Uruguay, a game where they really missed one of their key performers. Herdalo, who got sent off late in the, in the, in the game against Bolivia, but yeah, I, I think in a preview we, we we could basically guarantee some key performers for them. Herdalo up top, like I mentioned, Sosa behind him, and Mokun at the back. These are three players that have been part of the under twenty cycle before. They all went to the under twenty World Cup two years ago, although they didn't play that much and but apart from those we've also however we've also seen 
a couple of other top talents emerge, haven't we, Tom? I, I mentioned one of them earlier, Benia at right back, who is still playing for a fairly small club in, in Venezuela. So I can't see him being there that much longer. Yeah, he he's the sort of big name to have emerged from this side. Obviously, like you said, we knew a lot about that spine of Atalo Sosa and Macun, but Bonilla has been absolutely fantastic. Defensively sound, as you said as well, kept Rodrigo really quiet um, and has been good going forward and he's really contributed to that strong uh, right side um, uh, of the flank there for, for, for Venezuela. Um, I've also really liked uh, Jesus Vargas as well, who's, who's someone who's played a fair bit in the uh, Venezuelan league there uh, for Me- uh, Merida. Um, and he's he's popped up with a couple of goals, a couple of nice goals. So, yeah, there's there's been a, a good spread around the team and, and all the other players have, have sort of stepped in, done their bit. Um, you know, Ibarra and Yate and Caceres, Palmesano, they've, they've all done well. Um, and, yeah, I think they've been similar in terms of keeping it pretty solid um and then just relying on those those moments of of a bit of extra class that we've we've seen from certainly their big names stepping up to the plate and and McCoon has been inspirational at the back he really has so it's yeah it's been better than uh, I think most people were expecting and I think now they they're not there to make up the numbers they they can certainly sort of make it back to back under 20 world cup uh, appearances now yeah, for me, um, as well, something that's impressed me about Venezuela is in the opening game against Colombia, they were a bit more conservative, quite careful, using Hurtado as the target man. And then as the game evolved, they kind of evolved the way they played and they and they got the job done. I think this is interesting about Venezuela is we've seen a few different sides of them. Obviously, the likes of Samuel Soso and, and Vargas are good on the ball and like to play. But they're also happy that if they have to go long to Hurtado and play off him, and they can do that if they want to try and dominate midfield. They look fairly comfortable passing it as well. We saw that with, against Uruguay at spells uh, yesterday uh, to start the second round. So I think with that solid base, with Macron holding the defence together, um, some good hard-working midfielders, and then players who have the, the qualities to both play kind of responsive defensive football, but also then get on the ball and play. So I think there's a lot of strings to this Venezuelan bow. And it really reflects on how Venezuelan football is evolving. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, Venezuelan football was about trying not to lose by too many. And now we're seeing sides that can that can go long, can play short, can play a variety of styles of football. And that's really going to help the national team moving forward. And is a, it's a good indication uh, that there's so many young players that have multiple skill sets, uh, can play different systems as well. And with everything that's happening in the country at the moment, this this obviously means a lot. And I think that extra impetus of, of, of you know, making everyone back home proud and, and being there with the, with the national team manager, really, really taking it seriously, um, it says a lot as well for, for the performances. It's obviously going to be that extra fire that can, that can spur them on. Yeah, what, what a lot of observers at the championships have, have noted about Venezuela, including some of the scouts, is just how much heart they've played with. Yeah, a couple have commented to me. It looks like it means a little bit more to them than compared to some of the other sides, and uh, and that and that sort of thing can go a long way. And yeah, I think I think from the evidence I've seen so far, I fancy them to make it to Poland. Although they do need Herdado back up top for their remaining matches. Let's move on to Group B now. Peru and Paraguay are the two sides that have gone home early. Um, that's not a particularly huge shock, I would say. 
Um, and and to be honest, I don't think we will particularly miss either of them in, in the hex either. Um, both sides, for me, lacked attacking structure and correct creativity. Um, but it, it was Peru who were certainly over-defensive in, the, in their first couple of matches. Um, they, they did get a shock 1-0 win in their opening match against Uruguay, um, despite being on the back foot for much of that. But I remember saying to, to you, Tom, after that game, that I didn't think it was a type of, type of performance which was sustainable over the course of the tournament. Although they did end up becoming more attacking as the tournament went went on, which was strange. But once they did that, they were open at the back as well, and um, and they they were exposed by Paraguay, Ecuador, and Argentina for their defensive fragilities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, as you said, it was it was a great way to kick things off and it got the Peru fans dreaming that they could they could maybe do better than in previous years but as you said they were under the cosh for a lot of that game and and they did well but you know initially I thought you know Bolivia have have, have managed to sort of play a similar counter-attacking style and and perhaps that could be the way that uh, that they pick off um, some of their su- supposedly superior opponents but then uh, yeah, the loss to, the loss to Paraguay really set them back because, uh, yeah, as we'll get on to, uh, Paraguay, despite myself and Austin tipping them heavily, uh, once again proved to be not as not the sum of their parts. Um, and yeah, Peru they, they, again, like Bolivia, they were competitive, um, perhaps more so than than we expected, um, and there were some good performances there, but ultimately they just didn't really take the chances that they did have. Uh, and yeah, in a, in a really tough group, um, again, really tight between a lot of the teams there, you need that like finishing edge up front, just like, um, yeah, we saw with, with Chile and um, believe in the other sides that have, have gone out, just the lack of a proper goal scorer up front really cost them. Yeah. And as for Paraguay, to be honest, they were the only side I didn't see live in the stadium and, I think I only ended up catching two of their matches on TV. So they're, they're the side I've come out of this tournament knowing least about um, due to sort of travelling and other commitments um, around their games. Um, they, I did see their game against Peru and I, and I thought they played pretty well in that. Um, they certainly deserved to win and it was a wonder goal scored by Ojeda, is it? Um, who scored the who scored the brilliant strike in, in that game to win it. And they put in a spirited display to get a point against Argentina, I seem to recall. But they were surprisingly meek for me in, in their defeats to Ecuador and Uruguay when I when I saw those games back. Yeah, I, I was expecting a bit more from them, certainly in terms of fight. And, and, and that first, first game really exposed a lot of their weaknesses. Uh, it was a shame that we didn't see more of Ivan Franco and, and Quintana as well. Uh, it, yeah, just they were a bit toothless both in defence and up front. Aside from that, yeah, Ojeda won the goal, um, and you know a nice, nice free kick from Yamandu, who probably was one of the the better performers there. But I think whereas most other sides left us with some kind of sensation one way or the other, Paraguay were just a bit, meh, a bit, a bit nothing. You, you know, they didn't they didn't really leave any kind of stamp on the tournament. And and once again, I think there's good players there that. That with a bit more experience, will go on to to form part of what is, 
you know, an up and coming and exciting uh, Paraguayan generation as, as they kind of bring in, bring in the new guard. Uh, so I think, I think there is hope for Paraguay and, and, and I guess the, the main takeaway will be just the experience they can take from it. Um, so I wouldn't write off all the players, but it's, it's been a very forgetful, forgettable tournament for them. Yeah, just very quickly on these two teams. For me, these are two sides that in this tournament uh, and perhaps somewhat generally kind of lack an identity. I think you can see where Ecuadorian football is kind of going. Venezuela clearly has a style of play. Colombia uh, also, you can kind of see what they're trying to do. Bolivia, again, maybe lacking a little bit physically, but some decent technical stuff. For me, Peru and to a lesser extent, Paraguay didn't really have a clear style, a clear ambition in the way they played. And I think that's perhaps something that I can work on. Paraguay obviously have some good players coming through and we've seen a bit more direction from the from the senior side. Um, but with Peru, I'm not quite sure what they are. So, you know, I think maybe that's something over the over the coming years that they can maybe look to define exactly how they're trying to play, how they're going to try and get these results uh, and what they can kind of build on with that. Because for me, it's still quite unclear exactly what they're looking to do and where their key strengths are and you know, opposing themselves on a, on a game. I think we'll discuss this topic in a little bit more detail um, in, in when we review the tournament as a whole or, or review the final. But I think one thing I have noticed, I think some of the better performing sides, there's a closer link between the senior team and the under-20 side. So, so you can sort of draw a, draw a more direct line. I know that um, Seleco... The, the Ecuador boss, for example, he he was caretaker for Ecuador for a while. The 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 senior the senior team, um, and so he's he's still well involved in in, in that side of thing, from what I understand. Uh, Dudamel, obviously, he's manager of the Venezuela senior side as well as the under twenties. Then you got Guerto, Guerto, the Ecuador uh, under twenty boss. He's the assistant. To Tavares at, at Uruguay, so yeah, you know, there's there's a bit more communication there, I think, and and maybe the style um, sort of is 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 fed down a little bit more, or it could just be a coincidence. I don't know, but I, it was certainly an issue for Chile in this tournament as well. You know, a real lack of identity to the way they play. Anyway, let's move on to talk about Argentina um, now. I'm not sure what to make of them, really, uh, Tom. Uh, I've, I've seen I've seen most of their games. I've seen seen them a couple of times live. But yeah, Moroni scored a wonder goal against Uruguay, but that game was possibly one of the worst I've attended here. Um, you know, there was more shit housery going on than football throughout that match. Um, something you might expect in that fixture, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think. One thing I have noticed about Argentina, they do seem to have rotated more than most. Um, I, you know, I found watching Argentina games, I found myself sort of checking the checking the the whole squad. You know, matching the numbers with the names a lot more than I have done with with any of the other sides because because of that rotation um, and because of that, I think they've found cohesion a little bit hard to find. Um, and I think you know you could say that Almada has had these moments. The the young young lad that you picked out from Vélez before the tournament, um, Sosa possibly in defensive midfield too. 
has has had a has had a couple of uh, decent games, but yeah, there's no huge standout unless I'm missing someone. Tom. No, like you said, there there has been quite a lot of chopping and changing. It's whereas if you compare them to Ecuador, where they almost seem to name the the same lineup every every game, Argentina have been changing quite a bit, and I, part of it's due to trying to find the right combination of attacking players, uh, certainly in defence with. Bellelli going off to, to sign for Dortmund. Um, I think his head has been somewhat turned and he's not been completely focused. And for me, their best performance, um, defensively at least, uh, came against Uruguay when both Bellelli and Perez. Perez being the standout player for me, probably. Um, you know, he's, he's really shown what interested Atletico Madrid in, in taking him on. And he, he's captained the side well and, and they've been very solid in defence, um, as we've seen from from numerous teams but certainly going forward it's it's trying to f- fit in how do you get Almada Maroni De La Vega who's again been one of the bright spots uh, Julian Alvarez um, and yeah, Maxi I, Romero Tom, I, I agree on De La Vega but he hasn't played that much really like compared to well for me the talent that he has I, I felt that he's possibly deserved more minutes or or maybe they're just saving him because of his age he's what one of the youngest players in this tournament I think that yeah, him and Almada are both 17-year-olds. So the fact that they've been two of the brighter sparks um, means you, yeah, you can't really sort of heap too much creative burden on, on both of them to try and lead the team. Because I think they're, you know, as, as talented as they are, it is still hard for a 17-year-old to impose themselves um, on, a, on an under-20 age group. Certainly he's been good and he's been playing his way more into the team. Um, I think he will be... He's, I think he's probably earned himself a starting position now for the for the rest of the tournament. But yeah, like you said, it's 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 not been too coherent. It's it's weird because in in fits and bursts, Argentina have played some nice stuff in that first half against Paraguay. I thought they were very good. Um, certainly in spells against Ecuador um, last <clears throat> last night as well. I thought I thought they were doing some decent stuff. Um, so it's it, it's been weird because their midfield has been fairly uninspiring and I think they've missed um, Almendra's ability to link the kind of defensive and offensive phases. Sosa's done um, all right. Certainly that that nutmeg last night was 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 very good. Um, but yeah, there's there's just something lacking in terms of fluidity. Again, I feel like like Brazil, they've they're kind of playing sort of within themselves somewhat. Um, Romero's had a couple of goals up front. Um, and apart from his terrible, terrible haircut, he's he's looked like he's he's got that extra class as a as a proper number nine. Colillo has been disappointing. I, I was expecting a bit more of him, and yeah, it's it's going to be touch and go as to whether they make it to the uh, to the tournament. I think they have the potential um, to to kick on to an extra gear, but at the moment, it's with with some of the other sides hitting better form, and certainly. Well, we're hoping from from better performances from both Colombia and Brazil, then it, it's going to be really tough to see who who makes it out of there because certainly Ecuador, Venezuela, and, and probably Uruguay are the three pre- premier teams at the moment. Yeah, actually, looking at De La Vega's minutes in this tournament, he has played a lot more than um, I, I thought. So, my, I think my con- my thinking was conditioned by the fact he didn't start the game against Uruguay. So. Yeah, um, but yeah, anyway, let's move on. 
to talk about Uruguay. I think the second half in the game we saw last night against Venezuela in the first round of these final matches, I think that was probably the best I've played so far in this tournament. And if the match had gone on a little longer, I think I think they might have won it. Uh, but I've had some decent performers um, and some pretty disappointing ones too. Uh, for me, the decent ones have probably come from sort of the, the midfield area. You've got Acevedo there in uh, kind of the defensive midfield role. And also Davila has had his moments, but there's also been some very... Um, there's also been some very poor performance um, in the game I saw against Argentina. Uh, Gomez and Nunez were both very poor in, in that game. Um, Shia Pacasi, for me, has perhaps regressed. You know, he was one of our sort of one of the players we'd have put money on a couple of years ago to sort of be. Uh, a breakout star in Europe in coming years but two years on I'm not so sure anymore he seems less mobile um, yeah he, his movement isn't as good I just yeah and, and he doesn't seem to have the same killer instinct in front of goal he's, he's missed quite a few decent chances yeah he's I think he's pet paid for having just two years of having basically no football at all um it's, it's crazy to think that he's still 20 um I've, I've dubbed him the uruguayan peter pan but he's he's come up with a couple of goals at least which is more than can be said for a lot of players i i totally agree um gomez i was expecting a lot more from but again one of the youngest players in the squad there maybe it's a, too much too soon to, to ask from uh, from him um, and Nunez has been very very wasteful in front of goal I would have also liked to see a bit more from Sanario and Bocelli um, I think as you rightly pointed out Acevedo has been key I've, I generally as, as we expected beforehand as well uh, the defence has for most parts been solid Busquets um, at right back yeah he's, he's been good. good yeah he's yeah, been he's... One, of the, one of the best I think there's been quite a few good right backs in this, in this tournament I was discussing this with Simon I think the other day but we were struggling a little bit for, for a left back but yeah Busquets has definitely been one of the one of the standout players on, the, on this side and of the tournament as well yeah definitely and he's yeah again a, a really young player who's broken into the Peñarol first team which uh, you know takes some doing and I think I think yeah as you said one of their best performances did come against Venezuela there, but also they they were the, one of the I think the only team to beat Ecuador so far. So there's there's something to be said for the fact that they they have that in their locker, and that was you know a, a good good victory a, a against a, a extremely talented Ecuador side. Davila with a couple of really nice um, half volleys or volleys, um, can't remember exactly, but they both were were pretty special special strikes and. Yeah, I think there's there's more to be seen from from Uruguay who can who can mix it up with the, with the best of them, and they showed their uh, uh, their garra uh, l- last night with some fairly temp- tempestuous moments against Venezuela. But if they can if they can get you know a couple more of their more creative midfielders going, then then certainly there's there's no reason why they shouldn't be making it to Poland. Okay, and the last team that we need to touch on has certainly been the most exciting team in this tournament, and, that, and that's Ecuador. Uh, Campana, the, the number nine, Blatter on the wing, Cefuentes, uh, Rezabala, Espinosa. That's five names straight away off the top of my head. When you're talking about impressive performers, it, 
not just in this team, but in in the tournament as a whole. Plata, it's been announced today, is already Gonzalo Plata of uh, Independiente de Valle. He's already earned a move to Sporting Lisbon um, in Portugal, or Sporting Club de Portugal, I think their official name is. You shouldn't call them Sporting Lisbon. Expect somebody shouting at their phone. Yeah, so we're, we're all in agreement here that this has been the side which has not only impressed us most, but probably taken us most by surprise as well. Um, because there, there's, a, there's quite a few names here that we hadn't heard of bef- before the tournament started that, that have been impressive. And uh, and a few players we'd just never seen before either. So uh, we may have heard a little bit about them, but to actually see them and, and see that, oh, OK, they are worth some of the hype, has been a pleasure to see. Uh, so Fuentes, for me, in, in midfield, the number eight, he's been exceptional for me. Um, such a lovely mover on on the ball. He he looks so composed in in possession. Can turn can turn his opponent in an instance. And uh, but yeah, the standout for me is his range of passing. Um, he's he's delivered some beautiful balls to to Campana in in, in this tournament. And uh, I, I'll let Simon talk about Campana in a minute. Um, but yeah. There is so many players on this side to, to to talk about, so I'm not sure where to start, but I'll, I'll go to Simon next anyway. Yeah, we were just, before we were recording the pod, having a discussion of who we think is going to go furthest on this Ecuador side, who's who's your money on. And for me, Campagna is the one. I'm a huge fan. Leonardo Campagna, the striker, 18 years old, which is incredible not only for the way he you know he finishes his physical six foot three glides over the ground but also his intelligence um i think this ecuador side has so much interesting quality but it's not a, a solid organized pack midfield unit so i think the the striker is very very important in giving this side the balance the discipline so when they go into his feet if they have to go long then he keeps the ball gets it down and, and gets it to those midfielders so for me he's been incredibly impressive at Barcelona. His dad is a, is a minister and is a te- former tennis player and gave a like to my tweet about him. So Barcelona and Ecuador, <laughs> um, we should point out. <laughs> ah, yes. Barcelona and Ecuador. So he's still cheap, basically. Um, but for me, he's he looks like a, a, a young Falcao with hold-up play. Um, Paulo Guerrero, the name's also been mentioned. He's, he's incredible. For 18 years old, he looks like a 27-year-old, 28-year-old in just in everything he does. The way he brings it down, brings players in, his movement, he's scored some good goals, has a few good good attempts, clipped the post. And yeah, for me, he's been very, very impressive. I also like the right back, Espinosa. There's a couple of Espinosas in the team, but for me, the right back was very good, getting up and down um, just behind Plata, who yeah, that's mentioned. The, the right back was the one I was referring to. Yeah, I should have said his first. Yeah. I saw the the game yeah yesterday and he was like the furthest guy forward. It was it was incredible. Um, he yeah never stops running. It's been also but good in the ball, solid as well. Another one of those interesting right backs we mentioned, Plata. Very very quick. He looks like a Brazilian. Uh, I, I made the joke that if he was Brazilian, he'd be forty five million and signed by Real Madrid as the new Neymar. Um, perhaps a little bit exaggerated, but very interesting as well. And. Uh, Resabala, the number 10, classic South American number 10, very comfortable on the ball, lots of class. This team in general just has so much confidence. Um, the complete antithesis of Brazil in midfield, they don't care if they're marked. They'll still take it. They'll still spin their man. They'll still 
with an effortless laid back style ping it about they just make it look very easy and then when they lose it they're very quick to get back goalkeeper as well deserves a mention one of the best in the tournament uh wellington uh, ramirez i believe it is um uh, wellington moises ramirez uh, again very very dominant looks polished he, he's he's earned a move to real sociedad in in spain off the, off the back of his performances i believe yeah so and again i think three or four of them are independiente del valle so these are players who are incredibly cheap and available um they'll be gone for a couple of million if you're if you're quick but i do think you'll have to be quick because they're very good what about tom who was who's your favorite who's your pick of the bunch oh you haven't really left me with many players to be honest but i've i've uh, yeah i would definitely echo the sentiments of, of both of uh, the choices you guys have made but um i think someone that we're we haven't spoken about yet is alexander alvarado definitely for me one of the players that I hadn't really heard anything about you know Reza Bala and some of the other Independiente del Valle guys had obviously done well at youth level in the under 20 Libertadores um, and you know there, there's there's a few players there that, that came in with a, a bit of a reputation um, but yeah Alvarado uh, someone who I hadn't really seen and he's really impressed me he's, he's got that habit of getting into the positions at the right moments he's chipped in with three goals uh Again, nice and versatile. He can operate on the left. He can he can be sort of just off the front man. And and I think you know a lot of the time football is about partnerships. And there's loads of lovely little partnerships within this team. Certainly, um, Campan has knitted everything together with his his hold up play. And he, he did a lovely little header to to let Alvarado through for for one of the goals I remember. And and I, I really enjoy that sort of those two midfield powerhouses of. Um, uh, Sifuentes, as Adam mentioned, and and also his kind of young apprentice next to him, Emerson Espinosa, only 17 years old, but an absolute, um, yeah, a real. Ah, I, d- I, d- I don't think I realised he was only 17. The, yeah, the oh, he, he doesn't look it. No, he, he doesn't, doesn't look at it at all. all. No, and he's I, kind of I, I, the kind of chaotic figure next to yeah. the composed Sifuentes. Yeah, he exactly. just kind of runs around with his long legs and, but, and makes challenges and but does now, stuff. But now that you've said that he's 17, he's suddenly a lot more impressive in, in my mind. I, I I totally missed the fact that he was that young. Yeah, and 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 that sort of and another player I think deserves mention. You know, we mentioned that there hasn't really been a standout left back, but I'd say Diego Palacios has probably been one of the better ones. He again one of the players who's already moved to Europe um, from I think initially Alcas and and along with the Independiente Levage crew, there's also a really strong Alcas presence. Again, all these lovely little partnerships around around the pitch that kind of, it, it kind of makes sense why this team has clicked so well. And they've they've got the balance, but they've also got that kind of chaotic side to them as well. It's it's a bit of a, yeah, it d- doesn't sound like it make, should make sense, but it's really working. And, you know, this is why we watched the under-20s to see really fun, exciting teams that, we didn't expect anything from. I, I think they've got more minutes under their belt as well compared to to, to many of the other sides in this competition. By that, I mean sort of minutes at professional le- level in the Ecuadorian league. I, th- I think that's definitely played a part. That for me, they've looked an experienced side compared to compared to some of the other sides in this competition, which is a kind of a weird thing to say in an under twenty tournament, I guess. But yeah, um, I, I think that's an excellent point you make about the little partnerships all over the pitch. I certainly agree with that. 
one last thing I'll say is um, I've got a lot of love for Gustavo Vallecia's hair and beard combo. I think that's been one of the strongest. Uh, looks, yeah, the little the little yellow bit as well. Yeah, the, little yellow kind of sort of. Yeah, with yeah. with a bit of kind of dread ponytail going on. Certainly showing Maxi Romero the way it's the way it's properly done. But but yet the the shade of yellow perfectly matches the shirt. So yeah, it's, it is quite eye catching. I agree. <laughs> Tom, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at tomorrow eighty nine. I've just got a new piece of, about uh, the fence Eagles this year defender Lisandro Martinez uh, that you can see out there. Um, and hopefully there'll be some uh, scouting spotlight pods on the way in the near future too. And Simon. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Um, trying to pick out a couple of players. We've spoken to some. I'll track their progress. Uh, Colombian transfers happening as well uh, from Colombian players inside and outside Colombia moving about. So all that stuff, check out my Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Okay, and you can find me at Adam Branton 84 on Twitter. Um, nothing to plug at the moment, but there should be a few things coming your way in the coming weeks. On, on that feed uh, for World Football Index and possibly for some other publications as well. All what's left to say is a huge thanks to Tom, Simon, Austin and Andres for joining me on this pod and it's goodbye.